It's Monday, August 7th, 2023 from Peachfish Productions. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. As you know, I listen to the Sunday shows. I often listen in double speed, two and a half times speed. What do I do with the extra time? Spend time with my family? No, I go and listen to local PBS affiliate public affairs shows, sometimes in triple speed. So of the hosts, I do like Jake Tapper, but the State of the Union is but his side gig. My favorite full-time Sunday host is Margaret Brennan of CBS's Face the Nation. My second favorite Sunday host is John Dickerson when he fills in for Margaret Brennan on CBS's Face the Nation. My third favorite Sunday host may just be Major Garrett, who this week was filling in for John Dickerson, filling in for Margaret Brennan on Face the Nation. Deep bench over there on Face the Nation. And while a garret is a ligature used to strangle, this garret is a pointed instrument, dagger-like in its directness. Here Major Garrett was, as was every single other Sunday show host, interviewing Donald Trump's lawyer, John Laura. John, can I ask you a couple of very simple, basic yes or no questions? Yes, you can, and yes, he did. First, is there any condition under which the former president of the United States, your client, would accept a plea deal on these January 6th charges? Will you seek a motion to dismiss? When? Do you, have a, do you have a ballpark figure of when you'd be ready for trial? Are you still going to pursue a change of venue? Do you One have any that, expectation uh, that, that will be granted? The- Garrett elicited more direct, concise answers than any of his peers by asking direct, concise questions. He also did an excellent interview with former Vice President Mike Pence, where he deftly pursued relevant information through succinct questions. Would you ever vote again for Donald Trump? Look, I don't think I'll have to. I I have to tell you, everywhere I go... That wasn't the question, Mr. uh, Vice President. His interview with Bill Barr was informative, and his interview with Representative Dean Phillips was also good. At one point, Garrett prompted Phillips, a minor elected official, to talk more like a major Garrett. So if they don't, you will. I'm not saying I will. I... Look, I think I'm well-positioned to be president of the United States. You do. I do not believe I'm well-positioned to run for it right now. People who are Mm -hmm. should jump in because we need to meet the moment. The moment is now. That is what the country is asking. I gave you some running room, so let's tighten up the answers if we can. I don't know if Major Garrett's channeling of the Seinfeld library cop Bookman would go down easily Sunday after Sunday after Sunday. But if you asked me if it was a refreshing change of pace, I would say indeed it was. For in this media atmosphere of palaver and bloviation, we can always... Let's tighten up the answers if we can. Oh, sorry. Majorly good. Tight enough for you. On the show today, Hunter Tucker, Tucker Devin, Devin Hunter Tucker. Ha! But first, director Steve James is known for his documentary films, including Hoop Dreams, The Interrupters, and Life Itself, based on the life of Roger Ebert. He is out with a new film called The Compassionate Spy which tells the story of young scientist Ted Hall, who worked on the Manhattan Project, developing the nuclear bomb, and he also gave nuclear secrets to the Soviet Union. It is a great tie-in film with Oppenheimer. It's available on most major streaming platforms, and its director, Steve James, is up next. This is a recording for archive purposes. The idea is to document Ted Hall's activities in connection with his work on the atomic bomb. I left high school at 15 and went to the University of Chicago in my third year in the place. And I met Ted. We just went around together. Ted Hall was a man with a remarkable mind. He was a senior at Harvard at the age of 18. A recruiter from Washington came up 
His mission was to pick up a few very junior physicists to help in the research work at Los Alamos. Suddenly, Ted went all serious, and he said, there's something I have to tell you. Steve James is a documentary film producer and director. His films include Hoop Dreams, uh, Abacus, Small Enough to Jail, for which Steve came by the gist a few years ago. And the new one is called A Compassionate Spy. I have to say, most of the compassion in this project was evinced by Steve, who treats a subject who could be seen as actually one of the great villains of the 20th century, depending on your mindset, and treats him with compassion, with humanity, seeks to understand his motivations. And uh, I'm not going to say with no judgment, there is enough context for us to understand how someone who is involved in the creation of the atomic bomb could hand that information to the Soviets. But by the end of it, a fully formed picture emerges. Steve, welcome back to The Gist. Great to be here. Tell me about Ted Hall. When did you encounter the name? Did you know about him uh, even before that big 1997 book about his life came out? I knew nothing about Ted Hall. Uh, I learned about Ted Hall from our uh, one of our producers, uh, Dave Lindorf. Dave, I interviewed for Abacus, uh, investigative journalist who also has a deep interest in this time period in American history. And he wrote an article that Joan, Ted Hall's surviving widow, wife, read, reached out to Dave, and they struck up a, a relationship. And then Dave came to me and said, I think this is an incredible story. I think this should be a film. And, you know, learning what I did from Dave and then reading Bombshell and then going and interviewing uh, Joan, I agreed and just felt like this was an important story to tell. Yeah. Bombshell was that book. And it really is a bombshell. And the subtitle to Bombshell, and you have the authors as experts in the documentary, is The Secret Story of America's Unknown Atomic Spy Conspiracy. You're testifying that it was unknown to you. Another expert in your documentary says about the well-known American spies who were involved in Los Alamos and the Manhattan Project. He says the Rosenbergs were small fish compared to Ted Hall. You got to include that quote in a documentary, but do you think it's true? I think it's true in the sense that, you know, Julius Rosenberg was fundamentally a, a courier. Uh, he was not a scientist. And, um, and a lot of the information that he provided, while valuable, was not of as nearly of great significance as other people who did, including Ted. Ted wasn't the only spy from Los Alamos. Uh, Carl Fuchs, for example, was, was also a spy. Um, and the thing that Ted did that was the most prominent was is that he, he, he got to work on the implosion process, which was a crucial part of the building of the bomb that uh, led to it be to be able to be successfully detonated and create that chain reaction. And, you know, even though Ted was a junior member of the team, I mean, he was all of 19 years old when he started passing these secrets to the Soviets. He had impressed his superiors at Los Alamos to the extent that he was doing important work and he had access to it. And so the secrets that he passed along, they actually were similar information to what Fuchs had passed along, but it, it told the Soviets that this was legit, that Fuchs wasn't a double agent, and that the information they were getting was truly valuable. Right. So 
people are saying, wait a minute, he's 19, he's working on the atomic bomb. Yeah, he graduated Harvard when he was 18 years old. So he's tapped at that age to be one of these creators of the most devastating weapon uh, society has ever invented. And he's young and he's idealistic. And what is his ideology? He's pretty left wing. <laughs> um, he was, you know, his parents were from Russia. Uh, so he grew up in a household in which the Soviet Union was not some, um, you know, big boogeyman. Uh, and, and, if, and in fact, the Soviet Union, as the film makes clear, they were our, our allies during the war. And we wouldn't have won the war without the Soviet Union. But so he grew up in that kind of household, but he also was very left in his political leanings. He, he was, I think, communist, but didn't join the Communist Party. Um, you know, he was part of that generation of young intellectuals from that time that very much flirted with the idea or more than flirted with the idea that that there was this alternative to capitalism that was going to be better for the world. Um, and this was, of course, before the Soviet Union became clearly known as the totalitarian state that it that it was and and continues to be to to this day so did he give the secrets to the bomb to the soviets because he believed the soviets were more responsible than the united states or better equipped to handle this responsibility or or maybe did he want them to win a standoff uh post world war ii no i think ted Ted was pretty clear that the reason he gave the bomb to the Soviets or gave, and, and here's the thing, we're saying gave the bomb. The Soviets were going to develop the yes. bomb with or without Ted Hall or any of these other spies. Right. Your expert says the information he gave them maybe propelled their program forward five years. Yes. So, so it, it's not right to say that Ted gave them the bomb. They were going to get it. But, um, you know, I think Ted's motivations for doing it had to do with his fears of the United States having the bomb all to itself. And yes, I, I'm sure he, on some level he had some love for the homeland of his parents. Um, and as he says in the film at one point, especially once he started to understand a bit more about the Soviet government and have misgivings about it, that his reasons for doing this were to save the Soviet people, not the Soviet government. And, you know, he had a fear that the United States owning this technology and this bomb unilaterally in the post-world world would be a dangerously destabilizing thing. And, you know, he, it's you can historians can argue over that, but it, it, it was not it was it was not an irrational or naive fear on his part. And I think the film goes some distance to show that. Uh, and so I think that I mean, given the fact that the U.S. is the only nation that's ever dropped the bomb and that the U.S. did, in fact, during that five-year period following the war, it did exercise its authority uh, with, the, with it having the bomb um, and game-planned for a possible preemptive strike on the Soviet Union, then I think, you know, what Ted's fears were, were, were not coming out of left field. Yeah. Even though they were left wing. Yeah. <laughs> On the other hand, I mean, this is not, this is just um, not exactly the thrust of the documentary. I would say the five years where the United States was the sole Soviet superpower, sure, there were plans that were never carried through, of course, to drop bombs on different Soviet cities. But it was a time of American expansion. But I would say 
it did stymie what could have been Soviet expansion, and that would have been to greater detriment of more people in the world. So United States' sole nuclear superpower, I think, is a more preferable world to the Soviet Union acting as the check to the United States. But the film doesn't get into this. I don't know. Were you tempted to? It does get into the sins of Joseph Stalin. It does get into the you know, disappointment in many American communists, including the family of Ted Hall, when it was revealed that Stalin was, in fact, uh, as terrible as his greatest detractor has held him out to be. But were you tempted to talk if Ted Hall, genius though he was, if his game theory was right? Uh, there was some temptation, but but I, I wanted to keep this film as personal as possible, uh, because it's, it's also a love story, which we haven't really talked about. Um, you know, Joan and Ted had this incredible 50 year marriage and, um, but I wanted to keep it as personal as possible. And I wanted to help explain what Ted did and why more so than to try and play out all the various possible scenarios post-World War II that could have happened or may have happened or may not have happened. Because, you know, I, I guess with quantum physics, if you believe in alternative universes, maybe we'll someday know. But, <laughs> but, but, you know, I think there's so much argument, vivid argument on both sides of this um, uh, that, you know, that would have been a, a film in, of itself. And I think it would have taken, taken us away from Ted's central personal story about why he did what he did. You do interviews, fresh new interviews with Joan. They're great. She's a great character. Obviously, you don't get into something like this unless you have compelling central characters. Ted himself uh, was a character. He did die in 1999. So you had to rely on what archival interviews there were. Were there a lot of them? Did you? How did you go about sifting through what you wanted him to say in his own words? You know, when I first went to interview Joan, I had no idea if there was anything of Ted talking about any of this. Uh, I knew he had died many years before. And, and so that was a big question as to whether there was even a film to be made. Because as, as great a storyteller as Joan is, to not have Ted speak for himself would have been <laughs> really difficult to, to do as a film. So when I got there and she shared with us um, that they, and, and then shared with us the material, you know, they, they together had done an interview for posterity, um, where they both spoke about all of this, which was remarkable when I actually got to sit down and watch it. Then he did another short interview with a, uh, with a, you know, uh, an anti, uh, nuclear activist on a couch that, that has some very interesting things, but, but the one that was was the most surprising, and I lean on considerably, was an interview that was done by CNN and BBC for this series called The Cold War. And for an episode on spies, they did the equivalent of a three-hour interview with Ted, of which they only used about a minute and a half huh. <laughs> in, the, in the final. But Ted and Joan as part of their condition to agree to do the interview had gotten them to send the raw interview to them. So they had the entire interview and I was able wow. to get, I was able to see that interview and then it was a real job to unearth it and get it out of CNN uh, to use in the film because literally only a minute and a half of it had ever found its way into the public sphere. 
All right. So they, so as a condition for the interview, they could watch it, but to license it or to get the rights for it is a whole other different legal permissions thing. Oh my God. Yes. It was, it was quite a undertaking and, and I give CNN great, great credit because they really bent over backwards to, to get that to us and, and to kind of go around their, their typical practice when it comes to raw footage. Well, I'm glad they did because, I, you know, history deserves this and it's a treasure trove. And if you're a news organization, yes, I understand that you're right. But, you know, are you really serving the general uh, amount of information? Are you adding to it or subtracting to it if you're withholding uh, a couple hours worth of this great footage that you're probably never going to use? Well, it this is maybe digging in the weeds a little too much, but I think you'll like it. When they finally found the tapes, okay, in their library, there was a note on them from the producer who conducted the interview with Ted back in, in 1998, saying that none of this footage is to be used in any way without the express permission of him, the producer. Thank God he was still alive. And they tracked him down and I had a conversation with him where I explained what I was doing and he was very supportive and he said, absolutely, uh, we did that to protect Ted from anything coming out that could in any way compromise him legally, um, you know, in an unexpected way. And, you know, and so um, he he was very supportive of, of, of us using the interview. From the documentaries of yours that I've seen, you go and you do your own interviews. You do a lot of interviews, a lot of primary source work. Have you ever had to deal with the archival to this extent? And is it frustrating? You couldn't ask your own questions. You know, you you were just <laughs> beholden to what was on the tape. Yeah, I uh, I don't make many historical based films. I mean, the only other film that comes close to this, I think, would be the Roger Ebert uh, um, documentary I made where... But Roger was alive, at least for the first four or five months of that. So I was able to actually interview him and talk to him directly. So this was different. And, you know, to wrestle with archival is a different thing because most of the films I do are about what's going on today, not in the past. But it was also exciting to me. It was exciting to dig into this history and to, um, you know, to learn a great deal about, about it and to try to do it by still doing a character-driven documentary about these individuals, Ted and Joan. Steve James is the director of A Compassionate Spy. And as of now, you can find that in major cities. I don't want to insult Cincinnati. It's not a major city. Don't worry, Cincinnati. It's available (laughs) for streaming everywhere in the United States. Steve, thank you again so much. Great talking, Mike. Thanks. And now the spiel. You know Devin Archer, the former Yale lacrosse player who did deals in China and Ukraine with one Hunter Biden by his side. He was Batman to Hunter Biden's Batgirl. Wait, why not Robin? Why the gender switcheroo? Because I'm an inclusive hero, obviously. No, because Batgirl was the daughter, the child of 
the powerful politician Commissioner Gordon. It turns out that Hunter Biden is also the child of a powerful politician. His name's Joe Biden. He was the vice president of the United States, has a different job now. But anyway, though Batgirl tried to keep her identity secret, Hunter only had his identity to trade. His being a Biden was perceived as very valuable to Burisma, the firm he worked for. Why? Because in that area of the world, really in much of the world, employing a scion of a powerful person implies a bit of reflected power upon you. A few days ago, Devin Archer sat down with Tucker Carlson for an interview about how all this happened. What were the skill, the specific skills that he brought to clients? Well, at the end of the day, he, you know, he had a career in Washington. Yeah, uh, graduated Yale Law School and had a. He explained that the unstated wink and nod messaging is just how the game is played. Yes, the the the, the term signal in every other kind of market or theater or whatever you want to describe. It's like a pretty, um, it's a well-used term. So signal, like like the U.S. Is, doesn't use it, but it's a very common term to send signals between government and business because government can always shut you down. It's almost like right. the, you know, the the shakedown kind of. It's I, I try to equate equate it something, but you always want to be sending positive signals from that regulatory body, i.e. the government, to the business that you're not going to be shut down. Right. And so I think they're using in in you know common term to them and sending back here to us and say, you know, like, oh, I hope we're protected kind of thing. That's that's the, the term signal. Well, you just flat yeah. out, he well, just flat flat out, out says, says it. Yeah, exactly. We urgently need your advice on how you can use your influence. Right. Right. Hunter's presence was a signal. Joe being in office, that too was a signal. It's all a signal designed not to make noise. But in this interview between Tucker Carlson and Devin Archer, there was so much that, like international strategic advising, so much that was unstated. And there was also so much that was, at times, not understood. So I'm going to play one more clip, a long clip, that gets at a lot of the confusion, I think purposeful confusion on the enemies of Joe Biden. And this clip is about Viktor Shokin. Shokin was the Ukrainian prosecutor general when Hunter Biden worked at Burisma, and Shokin was corrupt. But Shokin was also, while being corrupt, looking into Burisma for being corrupt. Then Shokin was forced out, thanks to a no small part to the efforts of the Obama administration's point man on Ukraine, Joe Biden. All right, so this is as close as Tucker Carlson and Representative James Comer and the like have to a quid pro quo. The allegation is that Joe engaged in an official act that benefited Hunter's company. Joe's defense has always been that removing Shokin wasn't a quid pro quo, it was simply sound governance, which numerous watchdog agencies had advocated for. Okay. Got that? That's the background. Now, here's how Tucker and Devin Archer discuss the understanding of what went down when Shokin was fired. And pay attention to Tucker's own understanding of Archer's understanding. Clip lasts about a minute. I don't want to get it, but the narrative was that that it, Shokin was already taken care of. That was the popular narrative. That's the only thing that I... That he was already on his yeah, way out. exactly. That was the narrative that was fed to the board. Okay, so you were told when Shokin got fired that, like, it had nothing to do with it. No, we were told that that was bad and we don't want a new prosecutor. Shokin was taken care of. 
So it's very, I mean, this is not like, you know, checkers, multiple dimensions <laughs> here. <laughs> you know, so, so a possibly. This is like Connect Four. Yeah, no, exactly. It's like, no, I think it's, I think in this particular case, it's pretty. It's pretty high stakes and pretty sophisticated. So the narrative that I was told was that. That's just, you know, I've, I've said it under oath and I'll say it again. That was the narrative. That was the narrative. Um, did you ever, were you aware, do you have knowledge that Hunter spoke to his dad about Burisma? Do I have knowledge? Yes. That, do you know that Hunter spoke to his dad about Burisma? Did you ever see them talk about it, hear them talk about it? it was I never, No, I don't have knowledge of that, though I'd assume it. A few things going on there, but one is that Archer just blew up Carlson's entire case, that Joe's official action benefited Hunter. Taken care of. We all know what that means. It's just another sophisticated signal. But no, Tucker thought what that meant was that Shokin was a marked man, ready to be taken out. Archer was saying that he was a kept man, that he was bought off. If you ask Devin Archer the day Shokin was fired, the months and years after Shokin was fired, and I think ever since, how did that affect your business? He would say it was bad. Joe Biden committed an act that messed up a situation that we had all sewn up. And oh, this was all understood, such as the sophistication of the signals. But the signals were crossed. And this is why the entire argument of things were just known and sophisticated people don't need explicit evidence. It's why it doesn't work to implicate Joe Biden in wrongdoing. Joe Biden might have known. He might have not known. He might have not wanted to know. He might have found out anyway, then disavowed knowledge. But we don't know. That's the important thing. That tells you what we need to know about the Devin Archer testimony and the evidence of Joe Biden's supposed illegalities or ethical lapses. We don't know what they are. We don't know if they are. It's called not having evidence, which is where we are. We don't have evidence. Now, to be clear and fair to Republicans and the facts, Joe Biden has often been inaccurate in his statements about his son. His son did make money from China, contrary to Joe's protestations otherwise. And Joe did drop in to a meeting or two, I think it was literally two, where Hunter's business associates were also present. What does that mean? I don't know. Tucker doesn't know. Comer doesn't know. Though those guys will tell you they do know. They don't. Now, maybe you're saying, wait, Mike, you said this is the important thing. How important is that? I figured all that. Well, okay, now here is an importantly entertaining thing. You heard it when Tucker mentioned Connect Four. Uh. So it's very, I mean, this is not like, you know, checkers. This is multiple dimensions <laughs> here. <laughs> you know, so, so possibly. This is like Connect Four. Yeah, no, exactly. It's like Tucker laughed. He laughs a lot, and he laughed a lot in this interview. It's a thing he does, but he was especially tickled by Devin Archer. This from a man who denigrates the cackling of others. But what do we make of this as a physiological and psychological matter? Why the cackling? Good question. Here's a sample, a montage from the Devin Archer interview. I had a sophisticated... <laughs> Because I lived in Washington a long time around a lot of regulation. Also a very complex area. It's hard for me to speculate on that. <laughs> but like, I guess my question, just to keep it to the facts, right. it's let me, let me put my dad, the vice president on speaker. A regulatory yeah. environment in D.C. <laughs> Again, you know, yeah. large condiments and 
tires and stuff like that. <laughs> Large <laughs> condiment. It was going to shut our business down. It's got fired. Oh, no. <laughs> it's just what it was. Yeah. <laughs> um, anyway. Anyway, raises a lot of questions. Tucker is very thought-provoking on issues like this. Kamala Harris herself is doing a Kamala Harris impression. There is no actual Kamala Harris. And so it's, it's kind of a meta question. It's very tough. It's very difficult to pull off the rambling incompetence and the cackling. It is kind of funny, not laugh out loud funny, but something to ponder. As one does, assumptions made, cackles emitted, and signals received. Or not. And that's it for today's show. Corey War is the GIST producer. Joel Patterson is the senior producer of Cackle Montages. Michelle Pesca is CLO of Peachfish Productions. The GIST is presented in collaboration with Libsyn's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to AdvertiseCast.com slash the GIST. Ooperoo, jeeperoo, dooperoo. And thanks for listening. No one will talk to me. No one will come on the show. You're a white supremacist. We're not talking to you. Really? No, I'm not. I just, I'm